back to the Neil Haley show here on the total celebrity segment. And, you know, uh, an amazing story. I mean, a story that I'm just blown away by the first blind contestant and winner of a TV cooking show. Master chef won't let the rare disease that caused her blindness to stop her pursuing her dreams. So I'm excited to welcome the program, chef Christine and also Dr. Williams guys. Thanks for stopping by. How are you today? We're good. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. So Christine, can you tell us how you first learned of your diagnosis? Sure. It started when I was 20 years old. First, it was blurriness in one eye and then eventually blurriness in the other eye. Uh, initially, I was misdiagnosed with MS. And then several years later, I found a neurologist that understood me and a healthcare team that finally correctly diagnosed me with NMOSD, which is short for neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder. All right. And so I'm going to ask Dr. Williams, what is neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder? A good thing for early in the morning to, to ask that question. <laughs> absolutely. So that pronunciation was absolutely perfect. So NMOSD is a rare autoimmune condition where the immune system essentially attacks the nerves. The nerves of the eye are most commonly affected and symptoms can result um, in blindness or loss of vision. Also, the spinal cord is affected so people can have numbness and tingling or paralysis. Um, it affects about 10 to 15,000 people in the United States. And one of the reasons that we have decided to partner with Horizon Therapeutics for the NMOSD Won't Stop Me campaign pain is because sometimes the symptoms are irreversible. So we want to raise awareness so that people can be diagnosed and brought to medical attention early so that they can be treated and potentially prevent some disability. Now, Christine, how did you move forward and become so unstoppable in light of the challenges you faced? Well, initially it was difficult. Uh, it's human nature, I think, to go through this grieving process when you lose your vision or lose some independence. And well, when I was correctly diagnosed and put on a um, treatment plan that helped me, uh, I was able to kind of pick myself up and move forward. So I taught myself how to cook again in the kitchen with less vision. I learned how to read Braille. I learned orientation mobility with a white cane and then how to navigate the Houston public transportation system, which wasn't easy to go back to school. Uh, went back to school, did a complete career change, uh, got back in the kitchen and kept cooking so that I could continue to be uh, independent and then decided to audition for uh, MasterChef. And then since then winning that uh, season in 2012 really launched my culinary career. So for me, it's really important to be an encouragement to other people to share their own story and show that it's possible to live with this disease and also ful uh, fulfill all of your dreams and live your life to the fullest. So I encourage people to visit nmosdwon'tstopme.com to learn in about other people's stories, connect with other patients with NMOSD, and of course, share their own unstoppable story. Chris Christine, how did it feel winning? I mean, it had to feel so amazing because <laughs> once I'm sure once, I mean, you, it was definitely... once you got diagnosed, you must yeah. have felt like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be able to cook again. I'm never going to do my passion yeah. again. And then you were able to overcome right. that and then win MasterChef. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was tough. I didn't know how I would live a quote unquote normal life again. I didn't know how independent I could be again or what my, my next move or my purpose would be in life. I felt like I was taking a lot of steps backwards. Uh, but to be able to compete on the show and then end up winning that season, it was definitely a surreal moment. Uh, I felt like I had to work 
two, three, four times as hard as other people to get to where I was. But I feel like I worked hard. I put my, you know, head down and just put my mind to it and then um, found a way to continue to do what I love to do. And then, and most importantly, though, is to now I've been given this platform to be an advocate for people living with NMOSD or disability or vision loss and show them that uh, they too can live a very fulfilling and accomplished life. And I think that's the most important thing, live that accomplished life. And you're such a role model. Uh, Dr. Williams, what advice do you have for patients with NMOSD community, for the, that community? Yeah, so the first piece of advice is you are your own best advocate, um, you know, and it's important to educate yourself to the best of your ability about your condition and to really engage in the healthcare process. You know, make sure that you're communicating with your healthcare providers if you're having issues and help to create the all, the best treatment plan for you. I think the second piece of advice is to join the community, right? So raising awareness is so important and this campaign is so important because we want people to know that they are not alone in this fight and in this struggle. And also we want them to hear about inspiring stories from amazing people like Christine, who have not only faced the same challenges they have, but have been able to overcome them and to accomplish their dreams and goals. So, um, you know, those are my two pieces of advice that I would give. And I think, uh, Dr. Williams, how passionate are you about uh, this community and working with them to be part of this? Absolutely. So, you know, I am a specialist in neuroimmunology, which includes NMOSD as well as multiple sclerosis. And as we discussed earlier, sometimes there's some overlap and people can be misdiagnosed with MS when they actually have NMOSD. So I'm very passionate about educating and empowering people living with these conditions um, to be their own best advocates and part of their healthcare team. You know, and I think that's the greatest uh, thing is when you are doing something you love and are passionate about, it doesn't feel like work. It feels like something and it, it's something you, you know you're making a difference. And congratulations to you for all the work you do, Dr. Williams. Christine, where can we learn more about the campaign and gain access to your recipes? Sure. You can visit the website, nmosdwontstopme.com, and that's where you can find resources, learn about the advocacy organizations that are part of this campaign. And of course, if you share your own unstoppable NMOSD story, you can get the chance to win a signed copy of my cookbook. And it's got comfort food recipes and a lot of the things that I did cook on MasterChef. And how important it is to put equity in your being uh, uh, with the food you you eat, especially with the recipes you have and all that stuff as a chef. You know, we see so many things that are not healthy that we're intake. How important is that to you as a chef to be responsible? I mean, it's, I think it's important. And I think living life balanced is the most important thing. You know your body best. So, you know, if it's a day that you feel like eating a piece of cake will, meant, will mean more to you emotionally and mentally, then by all means do it. I mean, we shouldn't live on a diet where we're eating a slice of cake for every meal, but you know, whatever it does to make you feel better physically, but emotional and mentally as well is that's also important. So I think, you know, your body best, listen to yourself, listen to your gut on what it is that you want to eat. Well, I love hearing that because we can't just always be on this specific diet as I am always looking, I'm looking at that and what I'm eating more healthy, but you always have to have that cheat day or cheat meal or else you'll go crazy because there's so much good food out there. Where can people follow you social media wise? Are you on social media that people can connect with you as well? I am. I am. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, and my handle is the blind cook for all those. 
All right. And uh, any other new and projects? I'm also you on a, Good. Sorry. Go ahead. Where you can find info on you as well. Oh, I was going to say, I'm also on Instagram um, as the nerdy neurologist. Awesome. So, okay. So I'm impressed you're branding yourself as well with this. And that's important because you're building this community and to build a community leads to tribe building and leads them to this huge success. Because once you bring a community together and they have the right resources together, there's no stopping that community from the strides and improvement that they can make because stories make people passionate, excited and everything. So I appreciate you both coming by today and talking about this tremendous cause. And I hope everyone reaches out to you guys. So thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, you're welcome. All right. You're listening Thank and watching you. the Neil Haley show and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley show. And my guest today, you know, when I talk about employment expert, Oh, I feel for my guest. So I'm excited to welcome the program, Beverly A. Williams. What has happened, Beverly, when it comes to no one wants to work anymore? Am I wrong? Or what has happened with this great deciding I'm going to retire early or I'm not going to work a job anymore? What's going on here? The great resignation, the great retirement. I don't think people don't want to work. I mean... I think we're realistic enough to know that we have to earn a living to take care of ourselves. We earn a living, absolutely. We have but to what's going to happen if everyone is a is a mini business person? What's going to everyone isn't a mini business? But everyone doesn't want to go into business for him or herself. People want what they call a a fair um, a fair wage and something a, a living wage. I don't know what that is. You know, because as soon as the wages go up, the prices go up. Right. Yeah. So, so, yeah. So, so, so if you get a, you get a ten dollar raise, <laughs> it's gone in gas and 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 groceries, and you even haven't even had a vacation. Exactly. So, what's my point is with so if if no one works for a job, so like I'm looking at my expanding my business, and I'll, I'll be hiring different people at one point in time again, and as I did before, subcontract. But if no one wants to work, and they all want to be their own mini business person, is that going to survive? Or are we going to start seeing a cycle where employers are going to finally figure out to keep their employees happy and make it more of a 2022 type of atmosphere, not the days of 1980, where you're punching a clock? Do you think we're going to see that cycle so that people will say, you know, I just couldn't really run my own business. I thought it was great. Then I found out at the end of the day, I owe so much taxes or I really couldn't maintain my clients and I'd rather work for a company that's gonna pay me what I'm worth. Will we see a cycle happen again? The operative word is worth. People will work for someone else if they feel that they're being compensated at a level that they should be compensated. Absolutely. So do you think that's so, better than you know, compensating them to that level than doing it themselves? But we all know, Beverly, the number of businesses that fail is like 90%. 90%. It's outrageous that people think just because they work for a big company or are in corporate, they can go out and start their own business. That's a bunch of... Of course it is. And everybody, everyone who's um, motivated by the great resignation is not of that mindset. Well, what do they do? What do you say? Well, they could go to it? another company and 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 make more money, hopefully get a job that will pay them better and treat them better. And, and they only work 40 hours instead of work 150 hours. Because when you own your own business, you're going to work 150 hours, bottom line, or not that. But, you know, 
it's not like the days of, Hey, I'm going nine to five or I'm going, or I'm going to work maybe even, you know, 10 hours a day, 50 hours a week for this company. They're paying me really well. And I can just go and when I leave, not think about it anymore. When you're a business owner, you think about things 24 seven. So when is it going to be like people like you, Beverly, that are, and I know you are, that are going to educate people to say, it's okay to get the best employment possible. It's absolutely. Well, what, That's the American way. I mean, we always want to improve our circumstance, don't we? Yeah, we and want, we want to shoot for the for the stars. And I don't get the impression that people don't want to work. They want to be fairly compensated. And from my perspective, I don't know what that looks like. Right, I what's really fairly don't. compensated? So, for example, you know, there are a lot of good jobs out there, even in the space sector. If we're talking the space sector, people that they're taking people that don't have certain degrees. But the problem is, then you have a situation where they're still treating you like an in serious employee and not giving you any value. When do we, I guess the wages have to get to a level where someone's going to make six figures or more, or even higher than six figures, maybe even like, you know, upper six figures for them to not say, I'm going to do a business, run a business and survive and never get sleep or see my family versus doing that. You're Those people are going to have to cut their profits a little bit to get employees. Do you see that happening? That's going to be the big thing and compensate people the way they're worth. When you've got shareholders that you have to answer to from the corporate perspective, you have to be very circumspect with how you go about your business because you don't want shareholders to sue you saying that you've been derelict in your responsibility to shareholders by doing X, Y, Z or one, two, three and reducing profitability. It's in, shareholder value is important if you're a publicly traded company. We know that. Okay. All right. So based on what I'm saying is what tips do you offer people that, you know, are saying to themselves, they're, they're weighing the options. I have a skill set. I'm really good at that skill set. Should I go and do it myself or go ahead and work for somebody else? I think personal circumstances will drive the decision. Seriously. Healthcare would probably be one of them. Healthcare finances? How much money do you have socked away? Can you sustain your uh, standard of living? Um, do you have a family that you have to support? Do you have children that you have to be concerned about? Can you uh, sustain your lifestyle, your family's lifestyle, and fund a business at the same time? Do you have enough capital to do those things. And if you don't, that will make you hesitant to jump out there and try to do try to try to do it as an entrepreneur. But if you have a marketable skill set and you've engaged in networking aggressively, robustly, and you have contacts and your personal brand is such that you're an attractive candidate for leadership roles, technical roles, if you have all those things, and many of us don't, you can position yourself to market yourself and what you bring to the table in an attractive package so you can get those seven figures, if not immediately over time. But not working for somebody, working for yourself if you're talking seven no, If you're working, it depends. Now, if you're working no, for a pharmaceutical, a pharmaceutical company, a high tech company, you can make that money 
if you have certain skill sets. And you're a CEO, right? Or a high you level. Don't have, you don't have to be a CEO because you have you you have bet you have perks. Ah, uh, okay. And then then you don't you have, have to worry about losing sleep in the thing. Yeah, I think that right. The, everyone's teaching people to become business owners right now. And I think this is a great topic for you to talk about. And I'm sure you have, but I'm really breaking it down for you. People are, there are people, we're walking and, you know, going to a Walmart and literally there's one cashier. Okay. We are seeing a specific situation with this process where people are thinking they are not able to work, but they're going and doing other things. They're creating other things. And some of them will be successful. Absolutely. and And some of them will not. A lot of them won't if we're seeing the percentage exactly. of businesses because exactly. you have to be your own accountant to start out. You have to be your own HR. You have to be your own um, uh, tax accountant, not just accountant for counting every month. You have to be your own salesperson. You have to be your own customer service. You have to add all these things to the boat versus- And how many people are qualified to assume those roles? Except, hey, you're a social media influencer, but I wonder- You how have no choice to, because you can't afford to hire anybody. I bet you, Beverly, and this is, we're having a fun conversation, Beverly and I, I bet you not been on an interview. We're just, this is the, a great kind of back and forth. I love this conversation because it's really getting me going. Uh, the, 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 the problem is, and then we have all these people teaching people instead by paying courses, they have a brand and teaching people they could be entrepreneurs or business owners, and yet they don't know how the heck to teach them. They're telling them all these things that it's simple. You can do it. No, I believe there's a special quality to someone who's an entrepreneur or a business owner. Yes. That it, that is that is willing to sacrifice a heck of a lot of things, a heck of a lot of sleep when I was younger, a heck of a lot to create a brand, and it doesn't happen overnight. And there's lots of things. So if you so Beverly, you work. With in, in the employment end, are you talking to entrepreneurs as well, or are you focusing more on them? I did um, a TV show based in California, if I remember correctly, and one of the other guests was a serial entrepreneur. He is now my mentor. I mean, when I heard him, I, I was like, I was in awe. He was like, "No, I've never done a resume." Mm-hmm. Who's, who's the serial, serial entrepreneur? I'm not. Go to my podcast. You'll find his interview. I'm thinking, I'm like, he's never had, a, he's never had a, a resume. And he has multiple degrees. He has a law degree. He has a degree in accounting, in marketing, and in business. I'm like, wow. So I said, you know what? I want to interview him for my podcast. It was amazing. I mean, seriously. People, there are there are very few people like him. Very few people like him. But I think people should aspire to whatever they desire and step out, if not on faith, step out with hard work. I'm and you. if you and if you fail, regroup. See, the thing I, I chose to be, if I, 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 again, I've been told entrepreneur, the difference between an entrepreneur and a business owner is different things, that I'm a business owner because an entrepreneur creates an idea or something that's new and innovative. And that's the difference in the definition between business owner and entrepreneur. It's a very interesting component. An entrepreneur can't be just somebody who 
you know, has a product service, sells it and does these different things. No, no, no. That's not an entrepreneur. It has to be something innovative and out of the box. Like we talked about, like an Elon Bucks, that makes an entrepreneur. I Google that. that that's an interesting definition. So I'll, oh, call myself a, I'll call myself a business owner because this person called me out on that. Cause I didn't okay. know that. I always considered, you know, anyone an entrepreneur, if you're trying. I haven't heard that. I haven't heard that explanation, but it makes sense. And so, because an entrepreneur, because they're going to be, and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're game changing, life changing type of a situation. So, you know, we talk about the Elon Musk and SpaceX or different things like that, but there's other people that on Shark Tank have done that. They're not business owners, they're entrepreneurs. When I, when I think about the amount of sacrifice and tears and things I went through, I would do that far more than go to a day job. I've done it. I've done the corporate world. I've done the teaching world and I would never do it again. And I would never go to work for anybody again. But that's, that's, that's some mindset that I have. Right. That, that, but you that, know, to thine own self be true. You know yourself well enough and you've positioned yourself so that you don't have to do that. Right. And everyone told me I'd fail after I quit my job again the second time. They said I'd fail. Huh? I'm happy what I'm doing and that's it. But and I'm and I'm that's half the battle. That's it. It's half the battle. The other half is exactly. being able to exactly. But see, people who quit their jobs they better have a plan A to understand but that you they don't. Possible. They don't have a plan. You know, I watch um um Sunday morning and I saw this young man, he was seated at his uh laptop and he it, the segment I was about the great resignation. And he said, I know I can do better. I know I can do better. I'm learning um, cybersecurity. And I'm thinking to myself, cybersecurity, is it that simple? Can you just learn it like that? And I wonder who's training him. How did he get, how did he identify those people? Are they, is this a scheme and a scam? Are they taking his money? I mean, seriously, I was so concerned that people might be getting being duped. I ran across a woman who had an employment background. And for some reason, I just asked her, I said, do you know anyone who's an expert in cybersecurity? She said, yes. She said, go to LinkedIn. Here's his name and tell him I sent you. That's what I did. The man responded right away. He is a cybersecurity expert. I did it. I interviewed him for my podcast. It's it is easy to be to get a job in cybersecurity and to train in cybersecurity. Who knew? It sounded. It is. It is because of uh, it the, is. And then you develop it, and it's more of this the IT world and different things. And there's opportunities there, and they're looking for people. That's right. They're job opportunities. They're looking for people. He said you can go on YouTube and get some of the training, and the people who are delivering the training, you should get in touch with them. They will help you. So, how is it now that I guess you you really define this? You really have to sit down and really think about things when you choose between being a business owner. We're not being the entrepreneur, business owner versus working, being uh, an employee and decide if we, you luck out and you find a great job that pays you really well and you keep growing up that and you can move up that corporate ladder, you know that company is going to be around forever. And there's some that are, trust me. And you could go up to having to go as high as you wanted to. If you truly have that aspirations, you should weigh both those options. 
But if you're at a certain age in a certain situation and you've done that and you, you're cut your teeth and it's better to be a business owner, do it. But these people that are doing it now just because they're a social media influencer, they should talk to these NFL athletes that made millions of dollars and then blown it all at once. It breaks, my, it breaks my heart. It breaks my oh, heart. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. It breaks my heart. Because I watch ESPN and FS1 all day. Because okay. I can't stand to hear anything else. Everything else gets on my nerves. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it just, it's just, it's, it's just very distressing. Right. So, and I'm not a, I'm not a, a sports fan. I never watched the Super Bowl. I don't follow basketball, none of that stuff. Right. But over the past few years that I've been watching sports media, I mean, I am so knowledgeable about what's going on in sports. But when I hear that these young men have thrown away a golden opportunity to change their lives and their families' lives for generation behind marijuana, some other fine form of drugs, violence. I mean, when I heard that the, the quarterback for the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers had been killed in a in an a, a, a traffic accident yeah. i was like how is that possible i remember watching the draft a few years ago yeah. when he was drafted and so upset because he wasn't taken sooner you know it's just heartbreaking but there are lessons to be learned exactly. i wish i could work with them because see I don't talk like other people talk. I don't have any children. No, you, you, you have the, all the talent in the world. So you have a the book because we're, we're only a 15-minute interview. We could talk for hours. You could be. Oh, yeah. We could I did, used to have my talk show, my education talk show that I did for years live on WRCT and 88.3 in Pittsburgh and syndicated it. But we just talked education for an hour. It was just a debate. Uh, it was fun. And I remember those days. And this, you're bringing me back to somebody that can go to my level, have a conversation meaning and back and forth and is confident in the media. But you have a book now. Where can we pick up that book? Yes. The book is Your GPS to Employment Success, How to Find and Succeed in the Right Job. And it's available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Business Expert Press, and independent bookstores across the country. All right. Fantastic. Thanks for stopping by, Beverly. Thank you for having me, Neil, anytime. I appreciate it. You're welcome. You're listening to well. the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. And I learned so much from everyone I get to interview and especially authors, especially with interesting stories. And this guy's story is interesting. And uh, I wonder how much he can get away with some of this stuff, especially when we talk about the KGB, Russia. So John Christmas, author of the KGB Banker. John, thanks for stopping by. How are you? Hello, Neil. Happy to be here, and thank you for inviting me. The, here's the book, KGB Banker, with my co-author is William Burton McCormick and the publisher is Sunbury Press. All right, so let's kind of just jump right into specifically, John, your story. It's an amazing one, isn't it? And it well, the story is very timely because it ties in with the war. Um, I lived in Latvia for several years, and my co-author, Bill, lived in Ukraine for several years. And I had a whistleblowing story from Latvia, and he is an author. I mean, by trade, he's an author, and I'm a financial guy by trade. 
And we got introduced by mutual friends. And uh, Bill and I agreed that my real whistleblowing story would make a great thriller novel. And that perhaps the way to uh, get it into the media was as a novel rather than as a nonfiction book, because we didn't want to name the names of the real people who are involved in it. But anyway, we, uh, we have money laundering going on in Latvia, which is the truth, that's where it does go on. We also have uh, our villain, an oligarch who's straddling the border between Russia and Ukraine, and he's kind of the power broker between the corrupt bosses. Uh, we've captured the, the places because he lived there and I lived there as well, and we, we had some real experiences. And uh, I think we put together something great that works as a thriller, and also it has underlying themes about the corruption and money laundering going on in that part of the world. So based on what you're talking about, the story, tell us your story, because I'm really interested in more of that, and then everyone definitely needs to pick up the book, about the fact of being a whistleblower and seeing this stuff take place. Oh, it was, uh, parts of it were terrifying for me. I mean, the way I got into this in the first place is I was born in the United States. I was a banker in the United States. I had a connection with Latvia because my mother had been born in Latvia. So I had been to visit Latvia several times. And I met this bank that, uh, that hired me through the American Chamber of Commerce in Latvia. So I met these guys. They told me that, uh, you know, that this bank has a reputation that it's the mafia in Latvia. But they said that this is a false rumor. And uh, what we want to do is we want to spread the good news to the Western banking counterparties that we have proper corporate governance and proper anti-money laundering controls, and that they wanted someone from an American background to be their representative with the Western banks so that, you know, they can't send a Russian to go talk to the Western banks to say that we're not Russians. So um, anyway, that was my job. And while I was there, uh, I found out that the bank's deposit customers were 80% of them were shell companies uh, originated from the Moscow and Kiev offices. Oh, no. And also that their lending policy was completely fraudulent. They were making huge loans to known criminals where they were booking the loans fraudulently. So the bank was not only laundering money, but it was being looted as well. See, that's crazy. And the shell companies, I heard about that specifically in another documentary I watched about how China is able to try to value companies that are really not valued to that level. And then it's stock market fraud down the line and all that stuff. Well, the same thing happens with this money laundering things that Russia looks at it like, hey, you know, we can make these companies look like real companies just to, to launder money of crime. And when you spotted that, were you fearful to be a whistleblower? I mean, in the United States, being a whistleblower to a corporation, corporate company, that still could be really bad for you. <laughs> you know, a lot of things could happen, but you deciding to whistleblow like this. That's well, I perceived, yeah. I perceived that I had a lot of support in the beginning and I for sure did not move to Latvia because I wanted to be involved in a big fraud. I mean, I, I care about Latvia and I wanted Latvia to develop as a decent democratic country. I mean, un unfortunately it's something of an oligarch state and it's similar to the other post-Soviet countries. But um, yeah, when I found out that I was being used as a front for a big fraud to, uh, you know, that was going to be devastating to the national economy, I really felt I needed to do something. And I knew certain people. I mean, I knew uh, people at the United States Embassy, for example. In fact, they had even called several meetings with me to tell kind of fish for information about the bank where I was working. And I always had the idea in my mind that, uh, you know, 
in the beginning, I hadn't seen anything criminal yet. But as I learned about more criminal things that eventually, you know, if I if it was too much and uh, that they really deserve to have the whistle blown on them, that I would do it. So I, I gave the information to uh, a bunch of people, the, the Western Auditor, uh, the Western Ratings Agencies, the Latvian government and the FBI. And I basically left the country. Now that's what I did. I just bought an airplane ticket and I just left. Um, you were, there were some... you, got out, you got out of there because what would have happened to you if you wouldn't have gotten out of there? The well, I think I could have gotten killed. I, I had uh, phone calls afterward and emails afterward. I mean, one former colleague was calling me and telling me that uh, that the bank called her and asked her like, what kind of car I drive and where do I park my car and this kind of stuff. So I uh, I'm happy I got out of the country. I mean the. Um, the, the end of it was not what I was hoping for. And we capture this in the book, which is that a Western funded development bank called the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which is partly funded by United States taxpayers, uh, came in and did this cover up where they announced that they bought the bank and they announced that they did a due diligence on it and the assets were okay, even though the assets were stolen. And then about five years later, they admitted that the, asset, that the assets were actually bad and they were not actually good. But then it turned out that the Latvian government had, was in cahoots with them and had given them the money to privatize the bank with. And the whole thing was a huge fraud and a cover-up, but we, we captured it in the book. And yeah, the end of it is that all the money got stolen anyway, and law enforcement didn't really do anything. But uh, uh, there, there are some lessons to be learned from it. We put in you know, certain villains, there are plenty of villains in the book and they, they are different <laughs> sorts of villains. Some of them are the bankers, some of them are the, you know, the corrupt media, but then the, the good guys in the book are the media people who are not corrupt, the media people who really try to get the true story out. So this is, it was something about that, like a positive note about whistleblowing and about the importance of honest journalism and versus, uh, the problems that are out there, for example, corrupt auditors, they know that their client is a fraud, but they sign off on the audits anyway. Uh, the corrupt ratings agencies, they again know that the client is a fraud, but they give them investment grade ratings anyway. The The world has had a lot of problems with this and, and this is in the book and it was in the true story as well. All right, so let's kind of uh, talk about life after banking, after that whistleblower. What did you go out and do? What, do you, what did you do after that? Well, I still live in Europe. I don't live in Latvia anymore. I mean, I live in Western Europe and I, I'm in business still. I'm still a financial professional. I, I don't, I take certain precautions. I don't put where I live on Facebook. I don't put, um, uh, in fact, I think nobody should put <laughs> where they live on Facebook. No, you shouldn't tell your location but, ever. It's really true. You should never tell your location ever to people because... You, especially the, when you're more of a public figure like yourself after this experience, you don't want to be where they still could come back after you. You never know, especially with this war and everything. Oh, sure. Well, this, this raises up the stakes of it, of course. And uh, there are certain people who, you know, some people are sanctioned by the United States. Some people are sanctioned by the United Kingdom and some people are sanctioned by the European Union. And there are people connected with my bank who are on the sanction lists so there, there are real connections to that. There is a possibility with the, uh, with the war going on that, uh, you know, anyone could get killed. A whistleblower could get killed. One oligarch could kill another oligarch. Someone in the government could kill an oligarch or an oligarch could kill someone in the government. I mean, all this stuff is possible now. 
So uh, yeah, another thing would be, uh, let's say I get a message on LinkedIn that some business person who I never met before would like to meet and have a coffee with me. <laughs> so something which is convenient about uh, COVID, I could say for two years, at least I had a good excuse not to meet anybody because I'd say like, oh, you know, we should just talk on Zoom or we should just talk on the phone and we don't have to meet for coffee. And, uh, you know, everyone needs to be cautious these days. But secretly, I'm thinking like, well, do I even really know if this guy is a real businessman? I mean, maybe he's been sent out by the Kremlin. How do I know? Exactly. All right. So let's so basically life after for you is that. Now the book, is, so what is your goal for this book by getting this out? Is it more to tell your story or is it more you are in the mood of writing more books after this? What is, what is happening with Mr. Christmas and where he's going next? Well, I love books in general. I mean, I'm a big thriller fan myself. And I even like as an amateur wrote one myself about 10 years ago. And I have kind of ideas in my head to write other thriller books. But this was sort of a special one off opportunity where there was a specific experience behind it. And uh, my co-author, William Burton McCormick, he did a great job of developing the characters and the suspense. There's romance in it. There, there's a lot of uh, things that are packed into the book. I think it turned out great. And uh, yeah, I would love to go further with it. What we've done exactly with KGB Banker so far is there's the print book, which is available on the Sunbury Press website, and it's also available on Amazon. And then there's a, that was the first thing that got released. The second thing that got released was the Amazon Kindle book. And the third thing that has just been released, uh, it's Beacon Audiobooks, and it's available through Amazon Audible is the audiobook. So we have an mm -hmm. audiobook just just uh, last week was released. And I'd love to do more. I mean, I've, uh, I know a couple of people who are movie producers, and I've told them like, hey, this exactly ties into what's going on in the world. And, and it's a, you know, it works great just as a novel, but it's very timely because it's exactly what everybody's talking about these days. Uh, I would love to make it into a movie. Another thing that's been suggested is to make editions in other languages. I mean, I have fans who are Latvians who would love it to be in Latvian language. I have fans who are Russians and Ukrainians who love for it to be in Russian and Ukrainian language as well. It sounds very timely as well. Uh, very, very exciting times for you. Where's the best people, place people can purchase the book? Where can they go? Uh, Amazon. So uh, either Sunbury Press's uh, website or else the, Am I mean, there are some people who don't like Amazon. So if you don't like Amazon, then you can go to the Sunbury Press website and buy it there. Uh, otherwise, it's through Amazon and certain things are done through Amazon, like the ebook is Kindle. So it's, it's okay. Amazon. All right. All right. Well, thanks again, John, for stopping by. Well, thank you, Neil. Pleasure talking you're, with you. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley show. And I tell you one topic that gets people going is the Titanic. And I'm very, very uh, blessed to every day to interview very interesting people. And my guest today is Dr. Loring Stead. And Dr. Stead is a former doctor and I'll explain that, but also is gonna talk about the Titanic today. I consider you a Titanic expert. Would you say after you've written this book, you're a Titanic expert? Well, I, I, I wouldn't claim that myself, but I'll tell you this. What if the sinking of the Titanic was no accident? Sinking the unsinkable. And I uh, was foot and ankle surgery for 35 years. Uh, always had a real keen interest in the Titanic because I always heard about this relative that went down in the Titanic when I was a kid. Uh, I heard about this guy, Boy Billy, and uh, it ended up 
that after like 10 years of hearing about this when I was a little kid down in Harmony, Minnesota, Northern uh, Iowa, Southern uh, Minnesota, here we are landlocked and I'm hearing about the Titanic. Right. Didn't think much about it for about 10 years. You know, you always hear things about relatives, the crazy uncle in the closet, who knows what's going on. And then it, we moved to a different town Nothing really happened. I had a normal life for about 10 years, then went off to uh, school at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. And one of the first assignments was in this course called Paideia, which is uh, Latin for knowledge. It was a combination of like uh, English and history. We had to deep dive into our family. So I deep dived into our family. And here this guy kept coming up, W.T. Stead, W.T. Stead. W.T., that's William. William Thomas Stead, that's boy Billy. I heard about 10 years of voice Billy forever, knew everything about Billy. And then I started researching it during that time at Luther. Uh, and everything I read, it's like, you know, I had like six months to do it for this little class. Right. And it was just unbelievable. Everything I read, it's like, I already knew that, I already knew that, I already knew that. Exactly. So now go back. So then after 35 years of practice, I always had an interest in the Titanic, but asking if I'm an expert in it, I hit an iceberg called COVID and had to retire. At that time, my wife, double COVID actually, so I'm, uh, that's another story. But in that time, my wife said, you know, you've always been interested in your relative. Why don't you deep dive on him? So literally, there's probably 140 some books with Titanic in the name. I've read, uh, uh, read probably half of them. So in that sense, I probably am getting closer to be uh, in that top group of people that know about the Titanic. And then where I am unique is we have a huge reservoir of oral tradition, at least 10 years that I sat there in this little corner listening to all my ancestors talking about boy Billy, who ends up being WT. So now reading all these books to date, very seldom do I come about across something that's new. The names make sense. The scenes make sense. It's really, really been exciting. Uh, the five people on the boat, WT was really interesting. He was the world expert on child sex trafficking prevention. And mm. it, it, your listeners, don't believe me on anything. Start Googling this. I'm not going to spoon feed you anything. Google it, read it, and you'll see, oh, my gosh, this is legitimate. Now, I am proposing something knew that I'm getting, Stead was a pretty interesting character, you'll see. He was living in the Victorian age, 1850 to 1910, one of the youngest editors of a major newspaper in uh, London called the Pall Mall Gazette. Well, lo and behold, he was kind of a troublemaker. He was kind of always sticking the uh, uh, in, in, sticking the side of the, the Victorians going, well, we don't do this, don't do that. It's like, yes, you do. Look at over on the east side of London is Jack the Ripper. He wrote about Jack the Ripper. He wrote about bad, the underbelly of society that unfortunately humans are about. Well, lo and behold, Stead, being a troublemaker, I think I have gotten onto a new word. He invented like 20 words. So I think one word I have is historical friction. Because they go, what genre are you? Are, are you in fiction or nonfiction? It's his, historical friction because I'm going to reveal a bunch of stuff never before revealed. It's going to make a lot of people uneasy. Well, he was the leading expert on child sex trafficking prevention. They wanted Stead dead. Google it in 1885. He basically uh, single-handedly helped bring uh, age of consent from like 
13 years of age up to 16, which was huge. That made a lot of the Harvey Weinsteins and the Jeff Epsteins of the world very mad. For many years, they tried to plan. They got to get Stead out. He's, he's out. And then uh, on this same ship was his best friend, John J. Astor, the best, uh, the richest man in the world, the Guggenheims, the Strausses. And what did those three families have that were interested? They were not in favor of coming off and going to the, the new thing called the Federal Reserve System. And if you start now, the first assignment for your readers, Google W.T. said, get a little background and see what he's about. Then read Jekyll Island. What happened in 1913? We invented this new thing called gold standard. Who was for that? The families of the, and this is all true, so this is not ruffling many feathers, but the truth is, who was for that? The Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, J.P. Morgan. Mm. Now, J.P. Morgan will be an interesting part of this because he owned the Titanic. Oh, my gosh. I have a story where Stead was notorious late. We're always late. Steads are late. So Stead gets to the Titanic the morning it's going to sail. Okay. So this is April 10th. Gets there. Mid-morning, should have been there more, far earlier because it's going to sail uh, to France that first time uh, at about noon. He gets there a little bit late, uh, gets out of his carriage. Imagine the event, Neil. Imagine there's like 50 to 100,000 people that's docked. This is the biggest thing of its time. It's magnificent. It's huge. It's unsinkable. This is the greatest ship of all time. Everybody in London was down there. And how were they down there? A lot walked, a lot by, came by horse or carriage. Some came by train. There was a train station not far away. Some drew, drove this new thing called a car. Could you imagine just the sights and sounds and noises and smells that are occurring at this station at this time? Well, Stead gets out of his carriage at the uh, bottom of the little ramp going up. He hated heights. He was met at the bottom by the chief uh, purser. Stead had traveled, Stead was well known in the Victorian age. And he was met uh, by the first purser, uh, chief purser, uh, McElroy, I think the guy's name is. And uh, he goes, good morning, uh, Mr. Stead. How are you doing? Come on up. And Stead's like crawling up the little ramp and he gets to the top. Who's up there? Captain Smith. Captain Smith knew Stead well. This is a story passed down through the generations. Oh, wow. That one I haven't been able to validate, yeah. but the names are all there, but whatever. So when they get to the top, Smith is getting ready to leave because he's got to get the ship going. And the purser gets him up there and uh, uh, he says, I apologize to you guys. Purser says, You're, uh, I think he was seat suite 89 is not quite ready yet. Can you just talk to the captain here a minute? And Captain Smith was happy to do it because Stead was well known and the circles of being able to tell a story. And just like this, all being said, I could be wrong. I don't know, but Stead was known to uh, never let the truth get in the way of a good story, which is a mummy story that is won't be covered today, but we'll cover this another time. He snuck a mummy on board. That's another whole story. Lo and behold, he and Smith are to the side just a minute while his room's getting ready. So he's looking down at his people uh, getting in and getting out. And he sees this carriage pull up, real fancy carriage, up, out opens the door, real nice, pretty young gal gets out, right. starts heading up the thing, and who gets out behind him 
I don't even know if I should reveal this yet because these you are in the book. It's in the book. You should not. No, I'm gonna stop you. So a very famous man gets out from behind this young, kind of scarlet almost like, and Smith instead kind of chuckle at each other and go, I wonder who his niece is this time. Oh my gosh. So, so this guy would easy you find out. He was, noted, yeah, he was noted to travel with younger women. Well, this young lady starts up the gangplank. Right away, this uh, older, very distinctive gentleman with a beard, with a mustache, and we'll detail that further in the book. In the book. So you can't keep giving this away, Dr. Stead. Oh, we won't. Well, it'll be good. So the sake the unsinkable, but in that, he, this is just one of many, many stories. He gets like a little Manila envelope. Right, and they can see down there. And he reads it, closes it, calls the woman back. Right. Gets her in the carriage. Not till then had Smith instead in this gentleman's seen eyes, connected eyes. Smith instead look at each other. We're never going to see America. Uh-huh. There is some reason that person didn't get on the ship. What? And who, what? And, that, and who was the one that did not get on the ship? Not going to tell you. Yet. Oh, see, you're killing me. All right, so let's kind of go. So let's just say very famous, very known. But these are stories that. Uh, what about William? Did William go on the ship? Did he end up in the ship when the Titanic's? Your your WT is on the ship talking to Smith up on top. No, but what about okay. when the Titanic sunk? He was on the ship. He, he, he oh yeah, absolutely. He was in cabin eighty nine. He uh, is depicted. Uh, he, he was the guy given credit for uh, at the end of the uh, movie. Uh, they played Nearer Thy God to Me. Uh, Stead requested that. He's given credit for requested. Well, well known on the Titanic show. movie, yes, which everyone watches yeah, well, whatever. In real life, it would bag the movie. I'm talking about reality stuff. Oh. He's given credit in. You can Google that. And there's a lot of mystery and intrigue about the Titanic. But what I'm going to be revealing is the pre-Titanic stuff. This is stuff that ends up, we'll, we'll cover, the, the book will cover the Titanic. But this is what happened before the Titanic left to incite some evil people in America and England to conspire to say, we have to make sure that ship never sees America. And they weren't going to sink it. It was unsinkable. Their goal was to confirm who was on the ship, and they were able to do that. They basically hired a couple of the officers on the ship who had no idea why they were doing this, Humans respond to money. They were going to be paying big sums of money to at some point bump up against an iceberg, force it back into Halifax. They can't sink it. It's unsinkable. In Halifax, some things were going to be occurring. Either guides were coming to come on the ship or instead in that some of these guys might have went off if they were there for a couple of days, but they were going to make sure W.T. Stead, the Strausses, the Guggenheims, John J. Astor, and the fifth one, Archibald Butt, were never going to see America. And Archibald Butt might be a whole story in himself. He was the personal attache from President Taft sent to the Vatican to get dirt on his upcoming opponent, Wilson, on the upcoming presidential election. I'm telling you. I haven't discovered anything in my reading, except it's confirming everything I've already heard. And I think anybody would come to the conclusion. If you read all these books, you start going, this was no accident. No, not at all. Not at all. There was, 
you know, so you think that so, so, there's, so there's, there's some sort of dirtiness that happened that Absolutely. caused the Titanic to sink. They don't want that to ever come out, and someday it might. Absolutely. And you're the one that's yeah. be that guy to uncover it. You know, so what I'm doing, and I, I love this information. It's making everyone go pick up the book. Don't yeah. listen anymore before <laughs> Doctor Stead gets of it away. I don't want that to happen. Please don't. Okay. That's me and all these things and these great stories. And we, again, this is a shorter segment. The one thing I want to ask you is what is your goal? You said this is your first book on the Titanic. You want to write more books on the Titanic. Isn't that correct? Absolutely. My goal is easy. The goal is not nothing to do with Dr. Stead. Has nothing to do with W.T. Stead. It has everything to do with his lifelong pursuit. And now my life time pursuit of exposing the evil of sex trafficking in America that's still going on today. Uh, I fully expect I'll be uh, T-boned at some intersection in the middle of the night, Northern Iowa, mysteriously, if I get too close to the, the reality. But the Harvey Weinsteins and the Jeff Epsteins of the world do not want the rock taken off and exposing these little scurrying things underneath well, is it. This, is this in the Titanic book? You talk about this all or not? Absolutely. And then at the end, uh, I ultimately reference people on how to get involved with your local community on how to identify sex trafficking. For example, Ashton Kirshner, who is, uh, is one of my, he doesn't know me and I don't know him, but I know he grew up in Iowa. So I take credit for Iowa. I can try to get that introduction at one point in time. Yeah, yeah. Because well, I'm not connecting to celebrities, all these things. And this he has, a, he has a group called Thorn that's uh, involved in sex trafficking prevention. Let's get uh, Ashton and I on the same program and talk about this issue. This would be a wonderful introduction for you to him because he and I are pulling on the rope the same way, trying to undermine what's going on. The evil still goes. Every day you go to a local Target or your big store, you're going to see uh, 20 young people on the wall missing. Half of those probably aren't sex. Oh, God. So, so, so to try to understand your book, your book's about, about William, um, but it's, it, you talk Titanic and explain his mission too. So Absolutely. his mission is all about exposing sex trafficking. And uh, the back end third will fully, I, I go around the country speaking to other surgeons and docs on how to better identify sex traffickers within your practice. I probably, we never had training on how to identify the tattoos and the mannerisms and what's going on that some patient in front of you or client might be sex trafficked. Now we know those techniques and uh, I go and will speak to people in regard to that. And uh, so the book's not about me. It's not about WT. It's about his mission, his life mission, and now mine to expose the underlying belly in America and in the world of sex trafficking. And trafficking of humans is, there's more traffic, more slavery in America, I'm sorry, more slavery in the world right now than any time um, in history. Truly, in, in, the world, history. in the world. And a huge subset of that is sub-sex sex trafficking. That's it's right. it's wrong. Uh, Dean Kane was on my show. He's a big proponent of the, the sex trafficking uh, movement as well. I Another guy that's really doing a lot of stuff that's out there. So there's definite... Definitely fits. So are, the next book, is it going to be just about sex trafficking? What are you looking to write next after this? Oh, next, next book, certainly I, I set out, I thought I could really wrap this book up in a year. It's been two or three years and I'm still working on it. I have to get to England with my son, LJ Stead, who's a fellow podcaster out on the West Coast. And uh, he and I are going to get, we, right now we meet weekly with Clive Stead, who's the great grandson, the, the closest descendant of WT. And we meet with him 
weekly on a Zoom. We're going to go over and collaborate some stuff and then bring it back. So this book series is going to be two or three to get that. Off of that, hitting icebergs in life, which we all do, we've spun off the little series, thanks to Jack Canfield. He said, Stetter, this is a great idea, chicken soup for the soul. Have something, Titanic Times, two unsinkable and seven proven steps. And those seven proven steps, you know, like we are all, think of the Titanic. It was unsinkable, but three compartments sunk. And let's say my compartment, uh, let's say I lose my job today. That's one compartment sunk. Uh, my wife leaves me, compartment two sunk, and I get a health concern. Any of us are three turns from being homeless in Venice and California. So it, we're, we need to teach people to know how to go through the steps of what now, what next, and why not? And the biggest step is don't think you're unsinkable. All right. We're all unsinkable. When you're seeing that homeless guy you're walking by going, oh, poor him. That can be you, buddy. Be respectful. Give some grace. Be kind. Because we all are sinkable. That's the that's number so, one. Absolutely. Where can we purchase the book? Where can we go? It'll it'll be. It's not out yet, but it'll be on Amazon. What about the book? What about your current book? Uh, it'll be all. It'll be on Amazon. We're we're right now. Highbed Publishing, and it'll be out soon. Oh, so really, right now you're just getting people the Titanic Times, right? Start start calling uh, Amazon right now and saying, "Where's that book?" That'll be get me going on the pre-sales. All right, we'll I, definitely do that. I, I want to win the conspiracy category for uh, number one, but it's not. It's historical friction. All right. Okay, what about, so the Titanic book is not out either, the first one? Nope. The, nope. the one nope. that you have, oh, okay. No, okay, I'm understanding that. So yep. you have a website, right, for people to go right yep. now? Right? Yep, you can go to titanictimes.org. Uh, it's just kind of an up and running little website that's getting going uh, that kind of talks about all this because... During the COVID, I hit a Titanic time, I hit an iceberg, my uh, health iceberg, my son hit a financial iceberg. And we, during the COVID times, talked uh, once weekly and did a series of which we've labeled Titanic times. So we wanna welcome the community of everybody else who's hitting iceberg. Everybody listening to your show right now is in some type of iceberg situation, if they start thinking about it. It might be a new relationship, it right. might be, meaning the good Titanic might be something bad, but you're getting, uh, you're coming up against something that's new to you. It might be a graduation, might be confirmation, might be a new job, might be an old job, but don't think you can't go down like the Titanic. You th flood three compartments, your life is changed. All right. All right. Well, thanks again for coming yeah. on the program. You're Thank you so very, very much. You're welcome. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment.